This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this lovely Saturday morning for what is our 107th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And it certainly has begun to evolve. Last night, I was working at Mohegan Sun. As uh, many of our regular listeners know, I'm there for a variety of sporting events uh, to serve as the house physician. And last night was... Uh, all elite, it was all-star elite wrestling. So it's kind of a, it's a variation of WWE, kind of a spinoff of that. Um, And we um, had, uh, I think it was 70 performers who were part of the show. And we did blood pressures, pulses on all of them. We do a brief physical exam and blood work before they're able to participate. I was the only person in the whole place wearing a mask. And and I and that includes the fans. I mean, I couldn't find one other person wearing a mask, and that troubles me. Because we're in such a closed area, and here in Connecticut, our positivity rate is eight point three percent, and it's gradually dropping, which is great to hear. But we're still covering around that ten percent level, and I think what we're seeing now is a spike in other respiratory infections, namely the flu and the the RSV virus, the respiratory syncytial virus. So, um, you know, we still need to be cautious uh, as we move through this. Wrestling's kind of an interesting uh, performance because um, these clearly are athletes, but it's it's a it's an interesting type of performance because they always weave through these underlying stories, loud music. Uh, in many countries, it's considered a form of opera uh, or performance art. So it's interesting. They had a good crowd at the event itself. Uh, more things. Let's get back to the infectious disease stuff because what we're seeing now is a real rise in the flu. And we've been talking about it on this program, but we really need to uh, clarify this. So, you know, typically we see the flu rising between October and May. It peaks around December or January. This year is different, right, because we know that it's come earlier, because it came earlier in the Southern Hemisphere and in other countries. Uh, We've already had 880,000 cases of lab-confirmed influenza. About 6,900 people were hospitalized and 360 flu-related deaths. That's before our season begins. And it really, it's not been since the H1N1, for those of you who remember that from 2009, that we've had such a high burden of flu this early in the year. So it's really important that people get out and get the flu shot. 
as you look at the map of the United States, you could see that it's really begun in the south. So you're seeing it in Texas, Tennessee, uh, and South Carolina, and it's gradually making its way up uh, the Atlantic coast. So we can start to see now that this is going to hit us here in the northeast um, pretty quickly. And what we also know is that the strain of the virus that we are dealing with, so we've been able to isolate that, so the H3N2 it's called, and we know that our vaccine that we're using this year is very well matched to this virus. So we think it's 50% effective, which is tremendous. When we say effective, we mean keeping people out of the hospital because that's what taxes the system. We have a strained healthcare system right now here in the United States. We know that. And people are always outraged. Uh, I went to the emergency room and waited hours. So much of that is people waiting behind others who are there with the flu and influenza-type illnesses. So it's really important to keep that in mind. So if we're going to get anywhere with this, we clearly need to get vaccinated. And I'm hoping people are out there and talk about it. Talk about it with your family, uh, the need uh, to do that. Uh, This week we had another tragedy at a Dallas hospital where there was a shooting in the hospital. Uh, Two employees were killed. In September, we had the similar thing happen in Little Rock, Arkansas, with one person dying. And in June in Tulsa, as many remember, someone went into an orthopedic hospital and four were deceased here's the story folks i mean it's really gotten to the point where there are no safe places right we see these horrendous attacks happening in churches we certainly see it in schools we see it in hospitals there is no place where we are safe okay and It's always the same story. We're hearing that it's a combat-style, military-style weapon that got into the hands of someone who shouldn't have had it. I don't know what it's going to take, but I think it's time that we start to really figure this out. And we can tell that it's always the same scenario. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. And it's, you know, we're starting to take precautions in hospitals. We're taking classes on how to stay safe, how to avoid a gunman, uh, lockdowns, and things I never thought I'd be hearing about in my lifetime. Uh, This week, I was invited to be on the Morning News, Morning Express with Robin Mead, to talk about a dementia study that was recently done and published in JAMA Neurology. And in that study, it was a study where they said 10% of Americans in this study have dementia who are over the age of 65. So 10% of Americans over the age of 65 have dementia. And another 22% have mild cognitive impairment, which typically leads up to dementia. And it's, it's a fairly striking figure. And, and it was interesting because the discussion in the article 
was based a lot on demographics. Who were the people who were more likely to become demented? And what was interesting was how much of it is based on education. So, for example, when it was people who did not achieve a 12th grade education, the number rose to 13%. If you had achieved more than a 12th grade education, the number went down to 9% and progressively went down as you had more years of education. The reason I'm bringing this up is it's something we've talked about. Education improves health. We know that. Not just dementia. So people are always critical saying, oh, what's the use of going to college? You can't get a job. I see stories all the time. Everybody thinks going to college and getting a higher education has to be proportionate to how much money you make when you get out of college. And... I don't believe that's the purpose of going to college. It's not a trade school from that standpoint. It's a place where you go to learn. You learn languages. You learn about literature. It helps you later on in life to look at something from a critical standpoint and to understand things. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go to college to do that. There's some people who are just great learners and learn throughout their lives. They used years of education here, is it? But obviously, higher education is expensive. So what I'm saying is that we as a country, we as citizens, should be investing in two principal things, right? Education and health go together. And it reaps its benefit towards the end because you have a healthier population and less money that you need to dole out to keep everybody safe and healthy. So, again, it gets to the point that in the United States, we need to start looking at education and health as being the same and requiring a great emphasis on what we do with our tax dollars. The interview also prompted me to invite my guest on today, who will be here in the second half of the show. Uh, my guest is going to be Dr. Armin Fesheraki. Dr. Fesheraki is uh, board certified in psychiatry, but he specializes in a field called behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry. He is an assistant professor of psychiatry and of neurology at Yale, and he works at the Yale Memory Center. And this is important because memory centers are these multidisciplinary places for people who are starting to have cognitive difficulties. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy him. So um, I have a lot of questions for him, not just about this study, but about dementia in general. And what could we be doing about it, whether it be in mid-age, uh, as we're middle-aged, or as we become older? We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to talk about a few more topics that have come up um, this week. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Uh, a recent study that uh, came up, well, one of the things we've talked about on, on this program, uh, oddly enough, has been about tooth decay. Uh, 
uh, and we had a dentist on um, who was uh, Dr. Matthew Prezioso. But we talked about how in a town in Vermont, suddenly the person in charge of water decided to cut back on the amount of fluoride in the water, and they suddenly saw the number of cavities in children going up. And there was a recent study published, and it came across my desk, uh, which showed that uh, child tooth decay is now 16% higher than it was in the past. So this study was done from 2016 to 2021. And between 2016 and 2021, they noticed that the amount of uh, children with cavities was 16% higher. And it was interesting because they compared it to data before that time. Uh, Also, uh, what we're seeing is more and more of adults developing tooth decay. Now, I'm not saying it's due to any one factor, but one of the biggest factors is the lack of insurance. Even in the various pools where people can buy less expensive insurance, and they say how important it is to have dental insurance, no one really provides it. And what they've found is fewer and fewer people are going for regular cleanings. Um, For example, only 70% of men and 77% of women visited a dentist in the previous year. So, again, what we try to emphasize is that dental care is crucial to your overall health and something to keep in mind. Another study that came up, and I paid particular interest to this, and this was your vulnerability to being bitten by a mosquito. And I've heard, you know, a lot of, there have always been a lot of different theories. One of the ones has been on blood type. People with type O blood seem to be more attractive to mosquitoes. But this was a big study done, and they found that higher levels of carboxylic acids on your skin will attract the Aedes aegypti mosquito, the common mosquito. And it's these carboxylic acids that eliminate a scent, a human odor, that attracts the various mosquitoes. And this was published in the journal Cell, and this research was done at the Rockefeller Institute. So... What's important to know, so you think, well, okay, it's an odor. Let me just get rid of the odor. Like I could wash it off or use some type of uh, deodorant to put on there to get rid of it. And that's not the case. It really is not. It's the carboxylic acids are seen in the sebum, okay, the uh, oils of your skin. So it's really difficult to try and get rid of that. So, again, you say, well, it's a mosquito bite. What's the big deal? And the big deal is that there are so many mosquito-borne illnesses in the world. Um, There's malaria, uh, Zika, uh, yellow fever, dengue. And we know right now that this affects 700 million people a year in the world. As we see... Global warming. As temperatures go up, 
around the world, we're seeing more and more mosquito-borne illnesses. And we're starting to see mosquitoes breeding year-round. So it used to be, come winter, mosquitoes were gone, right? There wasn't a problem with mosquito-borne illnesses. But in at least two areas, in, in the District of Columbia and California, at least we know that these mosquitoes have been breeding year-round. So it's important because it's going to start affecting all of us. So what's the goal of a study like this? The goal is to try and find a way. So right now, what do we do? We spray ourselves with DEET uh, and other chemicals to avoid the attraction of the mosquitoes. And they work to some extent. But as someone who has spent time in Haiti, I can tell you that mosquitoes are everywhere. And mosquito-borne illnesses, malaria is so common there something we don't really deal with very much here in the United States. So the goal is to find some way of altering these carboxylic acids and the odor they emit so that it's less likely to attract mosquitoes. I mean, just something like that can limit and and avoid so many other diseases and deaths worldwide. So I think it's it's a story that is worth us keeping our eyes on and as uh, it develops. Uh, another thing is we're starting to see more recalls of various things that are out in the community. And one of them I wanted to bring everybody's attention to is uh, the sleep apnea devices uh, from Philips that, are, that have a sound dampening foam on them so that they don't make a lot of noise and this foam has now begun to disintegrate. And in these, it will now cause people to inhale the particles. And uh, these are in the Dream Station and System 1 uh, CPAP. So CPAP is continuous positive air pressure. Many people use this who have sleep apnea. And we've done shows on sleep apnea before, really talking about someone losing their drive to breathe at night. They'll have uh, an extended period where they're not breathing, and we find that sleep apnea leads to other illnesses in addition to disrupted sleep, which has become crucial for us in order to stay awake during the day when we need to function and be most productive. The problem with this recall is that the replacements are hard to find due to disruption of the supply chain since COVID. So again, uh, people be wary of these sleep apnea devices and contact your physician or wherever you get the CPAP to see what can be done about replacement. Since we're on the subject of sleep, next week, we get rid of daylight saving time. We go back to standard time, so we turn our clocks back. And this week, Mexico voted to scrap all of daylight saving time. So they are going to standard time year-round. We have made something that should be simple so complicated. So as our regular listeners know, I am an advocate for not moving these clocks because... 
we have good science. We have data to show that we have more car accidents, more heart attacks, more strokes because of disrupting our sleep by one hour in either direction. So we now have the Sunshine Protection Act. And in November 2023, they, uh, after Congress consulted airlines and broadcasters, they have decided that it'll be darker in the morning, basically, by going to year-round daylight saving time. So there's more daylight in the evening and night. Now, this is a move in the right direction because at least we're not changing the clocks. But who didn't they call? They didn't call the sleep medicine physicians who specialize in this problem because sleep medicine specialists will all tell you, if you're going to go to one time, go to standard time. Okay? So the time we're going to, standard time, is the best time for us to be on based on our sleep cycle. You can't change this. You know, changing your clock doesn't change the spin of the earth. It doesn't change your sleep clock. It doesn't change how your cells work. This comes down to a cellular level. So at least we're part of the way to doing this right. But hopefully we will get all the way there soon. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Armin Fesharaki. And we're going to be talking about dementia, his work in the field of dementia and memory loss, uh, where he works at the Yale Memory Clinic. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Dr. Armin Fesharaki. Dr. Fesharaki is a board-certified psychiatrist specializing in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry, and he works at the Yale Memory Clinic, and he is an assistant professor of psychiatry and of neurology at uh, Yale University. Armin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tony, for having me. I appreciate it. Armin, let's uh, start by what attracted you to go into neuropsychiatry and behavioral medicine? Well, uh, that takes me uh, back in time. Uh, as a medical student, even before that, as an undergraduate, I was fascinated by the brain, both from a structural and functional perspective. And uh, neuropsychiatry uh, is a really interesting marriage of the two. Uh, so I was, uh, from the very beginning, I was, I was interested from, in neuropsychiatry. Uh, prior to residency. So I started with psychiatry. I did my behavioral neurology fellowship at Yale New Haven Hospital University, and I stayed on since then. And I uh, also have a PhD in neuroscience kind of focusing on traumatic brain injury. So that's a, another discussion to be had. Well, let's talk a little bit about the things you see. And uh, a lot of this was prompted by uh, the fact that we're seeing um, the recent article in JAMA Neurology uh, stating that uh, 10% of people over the age of 65 uh, have dementia. And uh, what is the difference between dementia, mild cognitive impairment, and what are the different forms of dementia? If you could just give us an update. Absolutely. So mild cognitive impairment, these are, as the name suggests, these are mild deficits in different domains of memory and cognitive functioning. Typically speaking, 
uh, our short-term memory, what is called episodic memory, is quite vulnerable to change. So a lot of these folks, when they come in the office in the first place, they're complaining about kind of day-to-day memory disturbances. Again, all of us, once in a while, we do have some memory issues, uh, but these are folks that are having kind of persistent memory and cognitive deficits, which is, again, hasn't affected their basic day-to-day activities, but does affect the way, let's say, they check their balances, um, uh, do their finances. Their jobs might be affected to some extent also, but they largely remain independent. So that is what is called mild cognitive impairment. In the case of dementia, however, it's much more uh, kind of pervasive, progressive. It affects not only um, kind of more complex activities such as finances, it also can affect uh, the day-to-day basic level of care such as dressing oneself and uh, self-care and hygiene and, and all those different domains. And uh, the prevalence of dementia, as you mentioned from the JAMA article, is alarmingly high. Uh, so 10% is a very large number. Um, that involves about 6 million Americans, 6.2 million Americans. And that's a, that's a staggeringly high number. And um, I can speak a little bit about uh, the different types of dementia because they often get asked in the clinic, uh, what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? And I think that's an important distinction to be had. So dementia is a major neurocognitive disorder, is progressive and is neurodegenerative by definition. Uh, it's an umbrella term, so the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's. And about up to 80% of all dementia cases is due to Alzheimer's. And uh, there are different subtypes of dementia also that includes vascular dementia. There is a Lewy body dementia, uh, frontotemporal dementia, which I'm doing research on also. Um, so there are different subtypes of dementia that we also see in a clinical setting. So... Uh... Can we talk a little bit about frontotemporal dementia and Lewy body dementia? Sure, absolutely. So below the age of 65, so folks that are younger than 65, second most common type of dementia is frontotemporal dementia. Now, as the name suggests, this particular type of dementia involves the frontal lobes. Uh, our frontal lobes are vitally important when it comes to personality, behavior, disinhibition, multitasking, uh, essentially, it, it, it makes us who we are. So our social comportment, how we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day basis is largely dictated by the frontal lobes. And folks who suffer from t- frontotemporal dementia often present with these progressive uh, personality and behavioral changes, often over a span of a few years. And uh, again, uh, this is often very much noticed by patients' family members. I've had many of these uh, folks come into our clinic, often not by themselves, but is their, lo- their loved ones who bring the patient to our clinic, mentioning that we've noticed a lot of behavioral changes. You no, know, he's not the same man that he used to be. He's a lot less interested in day-to-day activities. He's more apathetic. Or on the other side of the spectrum, he's been a lot more disinhibited, impulsive. Uh, he's doing things that are uncharacteristic. And typically, the age of onset for frontotemporal dementia is late 50s to early 60s. So uh, these folks tend to be younger. And oftentimes, they are working at the end of their career. They're about to retire. Uh, So this is a very disturbing end to their uh, career chapter. And uh, these are the folks that come to our clinic and are often seen. And uh, the research that I can just briefly mention that I'm involved with is uh, we are looking at synaptic density. So... Our brains, these wonderful organs that we have, are uh, very much intricately connected. 
and those bridges, those connections are called synapses. So we're using the synaptic, uh, synaptic compound called SV2A, and the name is not important uh, right now to our, as, as far as our conversation goes, but the way of looking at how connected the brains of these folks are and whether that can be used as a diagnostic marker for the future. Uh, the reason being is, and I'll just be brief about this, uh, oftentimes frontotemporal dementia patients, by the time they come to our clinic, it's further advanced. So the question is, how do we find ways of diagnosing these folks much, much earlier? So let me get back to it because, so you talked about people coming to your clinic. So yeah. obviously you want, especially people with frontotemporal, to really get involved early on. So when does someone, when should someone seek care? I mean, uh, everybody often forgets things. I mean, we right. part of normal aging. Uh, but exactly. at what point is it necessary to get someone involved, someone like you involved in their care? That's an excellent question, Tony, and it's an important one to address here. So when the level of cognitive deficit starts to interfere with one's day-to-day -day life or one's day-to-day -day work or both, so ability to have relationships and ability to work on a day-to-day -day basis, these are very, uh, very important domains of our, our lives. And if they, these deficits are pervasive, are persistent, and they're progressive, which means that they are worsening on a day-to-day -day basis or a month-to-month -month basis, that's when the alarm should be sound. And it's often, I will mention also this important point that oftentimes our immediate loved ones may not notice these differences. So they're, they're with us on a day-to-day -day basis. Oftentimes the alarms are, are, are rung by, let's say, our children or our, our, our second-degree family members, or co-workers who are seeing us from a different angle, and they tend to be a little bit less, quote-unquote, subjective. And they are seeing these differences over time. And uh, that's, that's the time that I think these, these complaints should be taken seriously by coming to the office and get, getting assessed. You know, we have a full algorithm of assessments that involves in-office clinical memory assessment, uh, as well as more detailed neurocognitive batteries, what is called neuropsychological assessment. If there are, and every patient that we see in our clinic, by the way, they also receive MRI of the brain, which is extremely important because it gives us a very detailed anatomical window of the brain. And we look at particular sub areas of the brain, namely the most important areas as for pertaining to Alzheimer's in the beginning of our discussion are the hippocampal area or in singular term hippocampus. Um, these are the areas that are much more vulnerable to change, quote-unquote. And our MRI imaging, uh, this particular uh, sequence that we use in our clinical setting, allows us to compare the hippocampal area of the, of the patient and compare those areas to all the folks of their age cohort. And as you mentioned, as we age, there are changes in the brain, of course, and we are respectful of those changes. Uh, so what is called an age match comparison. This age match comparison is a very important tool set uh, it, we can really compare across the age category whether or not these folks are more advanced or whether they're within the normal, quote-unquote, normal age range. One of the things uh, I always know about, at least in your center, is it has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So we talked a little bit about, so people get referred to your clinic, and, and typically from uh, another physician, the primary care physician, a neurologist like myself, uh, but when they get there, um, 
how does the assessment begin? You said the neuropsychological testing, which we know takes an extended period of time and usually Correct. done by a neuropsychologist. So can you talk Correct. a little bit about the team approach to dementia? What makes a center different than just uh, a workup somewhere else? Uh, again, another excellent question. So I can I kind of walk you through uh, what we do in a clinical setting. So let's say hypothetically, Tony, you, you, you wanted to refer one of your patients to our clinic, and you have, and I've uh, been grateful for that. And uh, so typically speaking, uh, we always start with, a, in my clinic, we, as, as I imagine um, our behavioral neurology providers will do the same uh, in our center, we, we start with a very detailed history. And that's the intake session. It uh, takes about an hour to hour, 15 minutes. Uh, so it's a very comprehensive session. Uh, in addition to the history, it also uh, I also do what is called Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA. Uh, that takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do, but it's extremely sensitive in terms of picking out um, mild cognitive impairment slash early dementia patients. And depending on how patients perform on Montreal Cognitive Assessment, we can do further assessments. But I will also mention that every single patient that we see in the clinic, uh, again, every clinic has their own protocol, uh, will receive an MRI of the brain if they're having memory and cognitive deficits. And as I mentioned to you before, this particular MRI is without contrast and is what we call 3D volumetric analysis. So we, we hone in on those hippocampal areas, those memory centers that I mentioned to you before, and we do what is called an age-matched comparison. So we compare let's say, a 60-year-old to all the 60-year-olds out there. In addition to that, we do a set of blood works, and these blood works are what is called reversible labs. So, for example, looking at B12 level, looking at thyroid level, looking at folate and methylmalonic acid level. Uh, those levels, if they are deficient, they can cause memory issues. And we want to make sure we're not missing anything that is easily correctable. A low B12 is treatable, a low thyroid is treatable, and it's important not to confuse a metabolic condition versus a, a real progressive memory condition. Now, depending on how these folks uh, perform on the memory assessment, as well as their imaging output, we can delve in a little bit further, meaning that we can do a follow-up neuropsychological assessment, and we have wonderful neuropsychologists at Yale New Haven Hospital, Yale University, as well as also work very frequently and extensively with Gaylord Outpatient Center in Connecticut and it's this wonderful rehab center that we've been working with for years now. And they have their own neuropsychologists also that have been helping, helping us out with this neurocognitive assay. And uh, depending on the performance on our in-office and also our neuropsychologist uh, assessments, as well as the MRI imaging, uh, we can pursue treatment. And that's, again, I'm happy to speak about that also. Well, we're going to get into treatment a little bit, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, when when people show up. One of the things we talked about on this program has been hearing uh, as a modifiable risk factor for dementia. So many people Correct. are losing their hearing and become more isolated, uh, don't want to go out exactly. and participate socially. Right? They yep. are missing things. Uh, and uh, obviously you could see some atrophy in the brain. So mm -hmm. is, is a hearing assessment part of what you do, or how does that come about? Hearing assessment is something, is, is, is again, another excellent, important question that Tony, you're asking. And when, first of all, if I'm the first, when I'm doing the assessment, if I'm noticing hearing deficit or being reported by the patients, I take this very, very seriously, and I'll tell you why. 
um, our memory, you can think of it as kind of three-step formation. So the first stage, what is called encoding, that's when the information enters your brain in the first place. The second stage is consolidation. It happens often overnight in our deep stages of sleep. And the last stage is retrieval, access to the memory. So the first stage, going back to the first stage, the encoding stage, that's the gateway of information. So hearing and our vision are those gateways. And I take this very, very seriously. So we have audiologists at Yelp that I work with, and we do hearing assessment for these patients. So it is part of um, our workup if applicable. And as you mentioned, this multidisciplinary approach, I'm very much a proponent of that because we're dealing with an entire body. Again, the brain, uh, the hearing, uh, even the cardiac issues, that's another separate uh, topic that we can talk about. Those issues need to be taken seriously. And vision as well. Folks who have visual deficits, you know, I've worked with ophthalmologists in the community as well as Yelp, and uh, visual assessment. Uh, so th those issues are very much interrelated to our memory and cognitive functioning. Armin, I don't know how it is in your office, but in my office, no patient ever admits to having hearing loss. It's always their spouse. So we can, we can go from there. Correct. Let's let's move on. Let's get into treatment, okay? Sure. Because over the years, uh, there have been some exciting uh, areas yeah. of treatment for dementia, and then we've had a 20-year gap where we have no new treatments exactly right. for dementia. So where are we on two things? One, prevention, and two, yep. treatment. Again, very key questions, uh, Tony. So... I will mention that in this 20-year gap, uh, even though it may seem as, as a gap, and I, I, I completely can appreciate that point, there had been this incremental, slow but incremental march forward. So the idea is Alzheimer's, uh, from a conceptual perspective, is a disease of two proteins, namely amyloid, amyloid beta-42 protein, just amyloid protein versus tau protein. And amyloid being kind of this predominant protein that is involved in Alzheimer's progression and onset. So over the past two decades or so, there have been valiant trials uh, trying to find ways of diminishing this amyloid plaque buildup in the brain. And many trials have, you know, have come and gone uh, with uh, essentially very little success. There has been also, there have been quite a bit of controversies as well, as I'm sure you know about, including a drug called aducanumab, um, and that was conditionally FDA-approved, and this generated a lot of buzz and excitement. Uh, but at the same time, there are some controversies involved with, has been uh, quite a bit of controversy involved with that. So at the same time, I will mention that there is quite a bit of hope also, because with every generation of this drug, we are achieving slightly de higher degree of efficacy, and less side effects. And those, that, those are the combinations that we want for our patients. The idea that can a drug like aducanumab, and there's a newer generation of this drug, which has generated a lot of excitement, and I will mention that also, a drug called lucinumab, that, it, that there's a possibility that this will be in the horizon also in the future. The idea that, first of all, recognizing the disease much earlier, that's the key. When you read these clinical trial outputs, one of the common denominators are one of the common findings is the earlier the stage of the disease is, the more promising the treatment will be. So if you can catch patients much, much earlier, the treatment, these treatments that are experimental right now will have a lot more efficacy. That's the idea. So that's, so, that's where yeah. the excitement is. So it, the, 
we've worked in different areas. So when we have Aricept or Cogne, Cognex things, we've worked yeah. at uh, these were anticholinesterases and, and correct, correct. Uh, worked from that standpoint. Um, correct. Aducinumab, right, is a monoclonal antibody, if I'm correct? That's exactly right, yeah. So, so these are intravenous medications, typically? These are these are intravenous medications that are typically given once a month. And with aducanumab, the issue with aducanumab, the reason, by the way, uh, it was decided for academic centers like, like Yale, for example, not to dispense this medication to the public was because of the side effect profile and also the, the idea that the cognitive benefits of the medication was not very robust and it wasn't uh, convincing for us as clinicians and scientists. So it was... Uh, unanimous, unanimously, I should say, decided in, in our division not to pursue with dispensing this medication in a clinical setting. However, with, with that being said, there's a lot of hope for the future because there are other drugs that are running right now, such as lofenimab, that might be more promising. Uh, drugs such as Aricept or Memantine, for that matter, these are not disease-modifying right. medications. They can help with symptoms on this baby. So they have a lot of our mild cognitive impairment patients as well as early dementia patients that are on these regimen. And they, on a day to, in terms of quality of their lives, in terms of their short-term memory symptoms, these medications can be helpful. And, and I want to highlight that point. And there will, we will reach one day, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm certain about that, that again, we'll diagnose the disease much, much earlier. And that's the time that a lot of our, quote unquote, right now, experimental regimen will be dispensed in a clinical setting. And I believe that's a matter of years. And again, we'll see what happens in the future, but I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, are you using aducanumab now? It's interesting because I spoke to a colleague uh, yeah. who has been using it and um, in his uh, center and thinks yeah. it's the real deal. He thinks there is a significant amount of benefit uh, even in his small sample. Are, are you using it and are you finding improvement? We are not using this in a clinical setting yet, uh, Tony, precisely because, and yeah. again, one has to be very careful in terms of the patient population that is receiving sure. this regimen. And first and foremost, one has to be in very early stages of the disease process, what we call, again, as you mentioned, mild cognitive impairment, or to be more specific, anesthetic mild cognitive impairment. And these are the folks that can receive potential benefit from this, but at the same time, because of the side effect profile, and going back to the JAM article that was published years ago, uh, three years ago, um, up to you know, 42% of the patients that, are, that were receiving aducanumab had uh, edema, had effusions, sure. and had inflammation. And those are disturbing the high number. Yep. So we have to be very, very careful in terms of who we're targeting here. And that's why, because of those numbers, uh, it was, again, collectively decided from the Yale side not to dispense this medication in a clinical setting. But, again, there's a lot of hope for the future, and I want to highlight that as well. Armin, how do people get in touch with you? So uh, <laughs> if someone wants to be seen at your clinic how, and they're listening today or they have a loved one who needs your help, sure. how do they go about uh, getting to see you? Uh, again, I, I appreciate that question, and we have a growing division behavioral neurology division, and I have wonderful colleagues uh, and, and that are working with me, Yale Memory Clinic is, is a growing division. And uh, typically we get referrals from uh, wonderful neurologists like yourself from in the community as well as primary care providers. 
and um, we'll be glad to see them. I work both in New Haven as well as Guilford. We have additional clinics that, that will be opening in the future also. Uh, and uh, there's again, we're dealing with a growing disease and a growing population of folks with this condition, and we need to we need to meet the demand. So, um, and, and again, we'll be happy to see these folks in our community as well. Armin, thank you. Thank you for your time today, and really thank you for all you do for the community um, and uh, your expertise in this field. Thanks for spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Tony, for having me. All right. And we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap things up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. It's great to be back with you. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. You're listening to Healthy Rounds. Uh, In uh, wrapping up today's program, next week we will have a taped program. Uh, We will have new information for all of you, but I will be uh, on the sideline for the Coast Guard Academy and their game against uh, uh, Worcester Worcester Polytechnic Institute. So um, my uh, duties on the sideline will be calling for a noon game there. Uh, Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Um, As mentioned in the program, if you or a loved one are having difficulties with cognition, um, please reach out. Um, to your primary care physician looking for a referral to a memory center, much like the one where Dr. Fesheraki uh, really is an associate director. They do a wonderful job down there. As always, if you missed any part of today's program, you can get the Healthy Rounds podcast at odyssey.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.